Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for, so you can hire the right person fast. Find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs and get $50 off your first job. Just go to linkedin.com slash fool. It's Monday, December 9th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me in studio, Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Howdy. We're going to look at large-cap stocks relative to index funds. We're going to pour one out for Paul Volcker, but we're going to start with the entertainment industry. The Golden Globe nominations came out this morning for film and television. The most nominations in film went to Netflix with 17 nominations, followed by Sony and Disney with second and third most, respectively. Most nominations in television? Netflix with 17, HBO second. Hulu third, and I will just add parenthetically, broadcast television completely shut out of the nominations for television. Where do you want to go with this? Because I, we were talking a little bit this morning about this. Obviously, this is a nice feather in the cap for Netflix. And I think part of the reason is not just because it's nice to get this kind of recognition, but also because for anyone who's wondering about the money they're spending on content, Ted Sarandos can point to this and say, "No, I, I feel like from a quality standpoint, we're doing pretty well." Yeah, I mean, it, I don't. I'm not surprised by this. I mean, it really feels like this is just uh, reiterates what we've been watching play out over the last several years. Is just we're seeing the old legacy providers really take a hit on the content side, and I think a lot of that has to do with just the fact they've been hamstrung by. Uh, old-school advertising models and limitations on the type of content that they can produce. And we saw Netflix jump in there early on, see the the power of the disruption um, that the internet has provided, and then a lot of other companies have started to follow suit. Um, I, I don't really... I'm not one that really focuses or cares much about what award shows say or what critics say when it comes to content. Uh, but with that said, I mean, I think that these types of awards, just even these types of nominations, regardless of whether they win or not, these types of nominations certainly help get this type of stuff on viewers' radars. And I think that is probably one of the biggest benefits of all, is that it is more or less free publicity. I mean, I say free, obviously, they're paying a lot of money to produce this stuff, but it is publicity that helps get a lot of this stuff on viewers' radars. And as we enter this phase of just more content than we ever have time to watch, it's nice to know what is what is bubbling to the surface there as as the must-see TV and, and films and whatnot. And I think, you know, honestly, it feels like We've talked about this golden age for for television. It really feels like films have had a tough go of it, and and I think part of of the proof there is just this constant need to reboot everything. And these reboots are just so uncompelling from so many different angles. Uh, it's nice to see your Netflixes and Disney's and HBOs taking these creative moonshots, so to speak, and seeing some of them pay off. Absolutely, and I think you're you're completely right, particularly when it comes to the fact that you know we know that smaller networks, you know, whether it's FX or AMC, some of these other uh, I don't want to say niche, but I guess from a just from a content creation standpoint, in a way they are niche because they're not producing a lot of original stuff. Yeah. But part of their pitch to showrunners is we can give you a lot more oxygen in terms of promotion because the fact of the matter is. Netflix, obviously, they're going to promote their bigger hits and bigger budget items more, but 
just the sheer number of original things that Netflix is producing in a calendar year is in the hundreds. And so, as they continue to invest in things like stand-up comedy, there's only so much promotion they're going to give a new comedy special, no matter who's doing it. They're going to say, "Yeah, Jason, yeah, you've you've got a new hour stand-up special. That's great. We're going to give you about three days worth of promotion. It'll be on social media, and uh, maybe a billboard or two, and that's going to be it." Yeah. Um, and so it, it this. Uh, this really does afford them, as you said, this bonus opportunity to promote. Oh yeah, The Irishman. Yeah, it's a long film, but apparently it's a great film uh, because it's getting all these award nominations. I'm so torn on The Irishman. So I want to watch it, so but then I know I'm gonna not. I'm not gonna have the patience to finish it. And it's like you know, it's gonna be just an amalgamation of a lot of movies we've already seen with these guys, and you're gonna kind of know how it ends anyway. So do I need to bother really? And then you got Scorsese out there just. Begging you not to watch it on your phone, but it's four hours, man. Yeah, there's going to be some time spent watching this thing on my phone. Um, Netflix is a very interesting situation right now because it has such a head start on all of these other um, streaming services that are coming to market, in HBO included. I mean, when you look at some of these numbers regarding content spend. It's it's actually astounding. I think. I mean, Netflix is going to spend around fifteen billion dollars on content this year. You compare that with something like uh, Disney Plus, right? They're going to spend about a billion here in this first year. Now that'll continue to go up as time goes on. Um, they're just getting started. But then you look at something like Comcast's Peacock, which is going to be the NBC service. They're talking about spending two billion dollars over the first two years to grow out that service. And really, all we've all we've Recognize that service for more than anything is is probably just the fact that it's going to have the office once the office leaves Netflix. Um, but my point is that a lot of these other services don't spend nearly as much on content. That can be an advantage or a disadvantage, depending on what your perspective is. I mean, Netflix is trying to build a service that scratches an itch for everybody. Um, and so they have this wide cross section of content that they're building out. It costs a lot of money to do that. And if that's going to be their strategy, they're going to need to keep on doing that. That requires a lot of capital, and they're going to have to figure out ways to raise it. HBO, Peacock, Amazon, um, Disney Plus to a lesser extent. I mean, they are focused a little bit more on a specific world and what they know where the content spend might not be as heavy. But their catalog is going to be more limited, and that's that's by design. Um, so then it is just a matter of how these all come together, and and how we as consumers are are going to pick and choose which services we ultimately want. Price is going to dictate part of it, but I mean people are going to pay up for what they want to see, and and so you know again I feel like with Netflix having such a great head start, it's terrific from the consumer side. But now from the investor side, you have to start asking yourself how much more room can they raise prices. Versus something like a Disney Plus, where it looks like they have a lot of room to raise prices, but they're also just getting started. You mentioned the number of sequels that we've seen, or sort of the the reboots that we've seen, and I agree with you from a creative standpoint. It's hard to get excited about that. I think from a business standpoint, when you look at the box office numbers for this year, and the fact that right now the Lion King remake is number 2 at the box office and for anyone questioning Disney's movie strategy you can you can stop because, <laughs> yeah. because Disney is on pace to do about 10 billion dollars at the box office this year 
the biggest year they had was 2016, just over seven and a half billion. And I'm not even including the Fox properties. Yeah, you include those, it gets you closer to 12 billion. But it's it's really phenomenal what they've built, and and good luck to whoever gets to succeed Bob Iger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they've got their work cut out for them. But I tell you, it is amazing that even when Disney puts out something that you might not initially think you care all that much about. Then at some point or another, you end up seeing it for one reason or another, and and you discover, wow, man, I really enjoyed that. And I mean, the most recent example for me was over Thanksgiving break. We were down at the river for the holiday, and we keep that house uh, disconnected from the internet, mostly because we're not there all of the time and just don't want to waste the money. But we have a DVD player there. Believe it or not, those still exist. And Redbox, Redbox, <laughs> I love is our Redbox. Friend. Yeah, well, I mean, we we put it to good use there, and we got um, Disney's. Real life uh, Aladdin. You know, we got we got we got the the recent make of Aladdin, and I mean, I I have to admit, I mean, I did when it came out in the theaters, I didn't really care. Now, part of that is because I just don't want to get off my lazy butt and go to a movie theater anymore. But man, we've got that DVD, watched it. I really enjoyed that movie. Same thing with Toy Story Four. Matt Greer, be quiet, sit back. I know you didn't <laughs> like it. I thought Toy Story 4 was a lot of fun. I wouldn't have given it the time of day in the movie theater. And so it's really nice to see these companies uh, being able to fully realize the value in a lot of these properties well beyond their lives in the theater. Um, and I suspect that's only going to become more the case as time goes on. Uh, Paul Volcker has passed away. Uh, for those unfamiliar, uh, he was the chairman of the Federal Reserve from 1979 to 1987. He was 92 years old, so um, obviously thinking of, of Volcker's family and friends. Uh, the phrase "larger than life" gets thrown around probably more than it should. Uh, Paul Volcker was one of those people who was larger than life, in part because he was, I think, six foot seven. Yeah, just cut this enormous figure. And uh, I will tweet out the fantastic obituary that uh, Neil Irwin did in the Washington Post today, because it's it's not just um, doesn't just give you. Uh, Color on Paul Volcker's life and his work, but it also provides, I think, a, a very good and in some ways much needed context for what he did when he was chairman of Federal Reserve. Because essentially, he had been on the job for about two months, late 1979, and came out and just decided we got to, with prices and wages rising. To unsustainable degrees, we got to choke off the supply of money, and it's one of those things that absolutely, in hindsight, he gets all the credit in the world as he should, and it was absolutely the right thing to do. But at the time, and for the subsequent, I would say two and a half to three years, it was really, really hard, and he had. Uh, yes, he had fans on both sides of the aisle uh, because he worked for Democratic presidents and Republican presidents. He also had detractors on both sides oh, of the aisle, yeah. and I'm sure on YouTube there's probably footage of congressional hearings from the early 1980s where he's up there just getting ripped from both sides. Um, but just an incredibly impressive person. I, I, absolutely, and I tell you, I saw a tweet this morning from our friend Morgan Housel, and it really it was when I read it when I read his tweet, it, that was exactly what I was thinking. What he said, he said, we lost Jack Bogle and Paul Volcker in, in 2019, two men who were at times willing to look like idiots during their careers because it was the right thing to do for the broader good. And I mean, I, I think he was he was absolutely right. I mean, at the time, his his uh, monetary 
policy was, I mean, questioned by many. I mean, when you're talking about uh, interest rates as high as they were, and uh, also inflation rates as high as they were, I mean, it, it was a it was a unique time in our country's history. Um, like most things, as our country grows, as things change, I mean, we we introduce more tools into our toolbox and ways to deal with things. Um, but but he he made some decisions at the time that were seen as uh, harmful to a lot of people. And there were a lot of people that, that protested that. I mean, there was a lot of noise made here in D.C. about that. Uh, you, you, look, you look back at it now, there's no question it was the right thing to do. And I think you hear a lot about today how inflation is dictating Fed policy. And I really do think a lot of that is because of what he did. I think in hindsight, we look at what he did and how he was really right in what he did. Um, it's understandable now why inflation is is such a hot button issue because you really need to have that under control in order to be able to control everything else. My enduring image of Paul Volcker, uh, and just to add one more number to what you said. He makes this decision in late 1979. Unemployment is at six percent. Two and a half years later, it's at nearly eleven percent. Yeah. So yeah, as you said, there was a, definitely a lot of uh, pain in, in the context of history. It is short-term pain, but it was real pain, and people losing their jobs as a result of that. My enduring image of Volcker is uh, from the Academy Award-winning documentary *Inside Job*. Uh, Charles Ferguson's great movie about the Great Recession. And one of the things Ferguson does as director in that movie is there are moments in the documentary where he's getting ready to introduce a new commentator, and he um, you hear someone else talking, and Ferguson shows essentially a setup shot of the person who's about to be interviewed. And in the case of Volker, it's Volker sitting in a chair, probably in his office in New York City. And there's a production assistant behind him adjusting the lighting. And so just picture this very large man sitting comfortably in a chair. In his left hand are a stack of papers that he's reading. And in his right hand is a, what appears to be a whiskey on the rocks. Hey now. And I just thought, that's perfect that Volker just said, sure, you want to interview me? Come to my office. Yeah, come around five. I'll be. I, I, you need a little time to set up the lights, and that's uh, fine. I'm just going to be reading and you know having my first drink of the day, a cigar and whiskey. Exactly, he's a man's man, old tall Paul. <laughs> You're going to look back. Look, I think as time goes on, we'll look back at him with just more and more fondness. And, and again, I mean, I, we see those examples in our. You, we, do this stuff with our kids all the time, right? You may not understand the logic of my decision today, but years from now, trust me, you'll appreciate the fact that you ate your vegetables or whatever it may be. Um, he he was just having to communicate that to an entire country, and, and it's it's probably a safe bet the entire country doesn't have as firm a grasp on monetary policy. Nor should it. No, no, it shouldn't. But that's why we're here, right? Exactly. Uh, before we get to the full mailbag, quick shout out to LinkedIn. When it comes to finding candidates that are truly meant for your business, urgency can actually be your enemy. And that's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for things like creativity, adaptability, collaboration. LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and puts your job post in front of qualified candidates who match your business requirements perfectly. It's no wonder. 
a person is hired every eight seconds with LinkedIn. Visit linkedin.com slash fool to get $50 off your first job post. Again, that's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Keep the emails coming, by the way. A bunch of people emailing in holiday song suggestions, which, oh, yeah. which I am happy to forward on to producer Dan Boyd. Uh, this is a question from Mike in Ohio, and it was a pretty lengthy question um, that he boiled down to the following. What I really want to know is, why buy into large-cap stocks that are heavily weighted in index funds? You technically already own them, and is much of their growth already realized at this point where owning them does not help me beat the market? As they are basically the market, and he sort of kicked off the email by saying, "Why would I buy Apple if I've got index funds, and Apple is represented in there to a degree higher than smaller companies in the S and P 500? Why would I buy Apple?" Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair question. I mean, if you're looking at something like an S and P index fund that's market cap weighted, it's going to favor the bigger companies, and Apple is certainly one of those, along with Google, Microsoft, and many others. I think um, it's a fair question. I think that. The answer is that ultimately not all large caps are created equal, and they're not all the same. And to be sure, if you look over just the last five years, for example, Apple and Microsoft have outperformed the market handily, while Oracle has not. And so you ask yourself why you would be invested in a fund, in an S and P 500 index fund, for example. And you're you're looking to do that for any number of reasons, but diversification is obviously one that comes to mind. It gives you it gives you ownership of, of a lot of different businesses as opposed to trying to have a, to pick and choose. Now, um, if you are in the mindset of wanting to pick and choose, I I don't think it's I don't think looking at large caps as companies that are so big they can't really grow anymore. I don't think that's a good way to look at it. I mean, I think we've seen time and time again a lot of these large caps continue to disprove that. And part of the reason is because technology continues to change the game for so many of these companies and and um I mean if you're looking just at the future when it comes to things like cloud computing, for example, we're really now starting to realize the the uh, returns on, on all of those investments. Look forward a little bit further to spatial computing and augmented reality and virtual reality, mixed reality. Those are going to be catalysts that help these these big companies that have been making big investments in those spaces uh, for years to come as well. Uh, plus, you, you look at these large caps that typically can afford to pay a dividend. They can raise that dividend. They make a lot of cash. So they can buy back a lot of shares. So the business doesn't necessarily have to be growing at some breakneck rate in order for you to still realize outsized returns as an investor. Uh, so, so ultimately, I think that you know when you start talking about large caps, recognize the fact that not all large caps are created equal. Uh, look to see how they've performed over time, um, and if you're looking to invest in individual large caps, I think you can find some some pretty compelling ideas out there. Companies that have terrific track records and that have, uh, you know, a lot a lot in the pipeline here for the coming years. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Bells are ringing and a jingling. Folks are mixing and a mingling. Twinkling lights and tinsel on the tree. How I love to keep the Yuletide gay. Call me corny or cliche. But there's a reason that the season brings so much joy to me. Ah!
love snowmen and turtle doves in twos. Holly, ivy, mistletoe can take away my blues. Chris Kringle and his reindeer friends, they endlessly amuse. But the best part of the holidays is sugar and booze. I love mittens and skating on the ice. But I glide right through December, mixing naughty with that nice. So pour a nip into that dog and let it light your fuse. Because the best part of the holidays is sugar and booze. Wake up, baby, don't you hit the snooze. Just forget the But keep it spiked with rum. What good's a little drummer boy with no pom 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 pom? Come New Year's Day, we'll all resolve those extra pounds to lose. But now's the time we let it rip with sugar and booze. Zale.